Let's turn to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we'll read the first six verses. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he, being dead, still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Connection with our uh, scripture reading, we also turn again to Article 1 of the Belgian Confession on page 153. 153 in our Book of Forms and Prayers, read Article 1 concerning the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we continue to focus our attention upon uh, that which, in essence, you might say every worship service is about. It's about God and about the knowledge of Him as He's made Himself known to us. And it is uh, the true knowledge of God, which is eternal life. And, uh, it was noted last time that the knowledge of God is not uh, dependent upon our level of intelligence. It's not a matter of uh, our IQ, such that a Christian who is uh, smarter than others would have a deeper and a truer, a better knowledge of God than those who don't uh, share the same intellectual uh, capabilities. Uh, the true knowledge of God is practical. The true knowledge of God is experiential. Uh, just consider the fact that uh, all of us uh, have a greater doctrinal knowledge of God than Enoch. What did Enoch have? Uh, did he have any record, uh, any written record of God's dealings? Certainly the truth of, of God had been passed down. Uh, but in comparison to what we know of God by his works and his word, and above all in his self-revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Enoch's knowledge of God was comparatively rather, rather meager. So we know a lot more than, uh, than Enoch did, doctrinally, you might say. But that doesn't mean that we walk with God as he did. Now, the power of, uh, of godliness lies in our belief and practice of the most basic and simple points of the faith. Now, I trust you know that that doesn't mean that uh, we dismiss or uh, deny in any way the importance of growing in our doctrinal knowledge, growing in our 
our knowledge of the scripture. Uh, and we are not to be indifferent at all to, to such knowledge. So I say this not to undermine the importance of growing in, in knowledge, but rather, uh, to encourage every Christian, whatever our age, whatever our capacity, with the assurance that we may know God truly, we may know God deeply, and we may grow to know Him better, uh, throughout our entire lives until we, we see His face in, in glory and, uh, we have the fullness of that revelation that he is pleased to give us according to our creaturely capacity. We're also told in Hebrews chapter 11 that Enoch uh, pleased God. And he pleased God not because uh, he was a successful uh, preacher or a reformer or a missionary or a martyr. However, he served God in his daily life most important. And at the, and the root of it all was a heart belief. And we might say a heart belief in two very simple and yet profound things that are indicated in our text. The first is that God is. God is real. God was known to him as the living God. And he knew God as one who is gracious, who has dealings with people so that we might indeed commune with him have a relationship uh, with him. God is close to people uh, who come to him, to use the language of our text, and who seek him as he has revealed himself. Knowing God means believing that he is and that he is gracious. And that's our theme from uh, the sixth verse here this uh, evening. Knowing God means believing, first of all, that he exists. Belgian Confession Article 1 confesses such a belief that there is a single, simple, spiritual being whom we call God. God is. God exists. Now, I suppose some might think, well, isn't this really too obvious to deserve attention? It's something that we just take for granted as, as true. But the fact is that there are, that there are people, there have been people down through the centuries and who yet today write, uh, books on theology. They write books about God. And yet they view God as if he or she, we might say nowadays, were simply a construct of the human mind. Their, their theology has been called a theology from below. They see religious endeavors and efforts to uh, to speak about God as an exercise of a human intellectual philosophical quest. It comes from man. This knowledge is something that uh, has its origin in the human mind, in its creative or, or uh, capacity to, to think and to reflect deeply upon reality as they, as they experience it and see it from their creaturely perspective, which in a sense they assume all is all there is. They have a theology from below that originates in man's religious experience. That's, the way, that's how a lot of people view the Bible. They view the Bible as a record of this theology from below. They view it as a, re, as a, as a record of man's reflection about God. And it provides us a basis for an ongoing rich 
conversation about the concept of God and how we might choose to think about Him. But what's missing in that whole perception of God is the reality that a true theology is based not upon what man can contrive in his own mind. It is based upon what God, the living and true God, has revealed from above concerning himself. And so this view of a a theology from below involves all different kinds of theories about God, uh, different brands of of theology. There's a feminist theology, or there's a process theology, the idea that that God is kind of an evolving being who, who changes in some way that's actually quite incomprehensible once you begin to think about it. And there's the God of religious scholars who teach in uh, universities across uh, the world and have tenured positions in religion courses who uh, speak about God, uh, who do not believe in creation out of nothing, who do not believe in miracles, who do not believe in the virgin birth, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not really believe that God is objectively knowable, that we can know Him truly because He has made Himself known. They don't believe in God as a personal God with whom they can really have fellowship, except maybe as a kind of therapeutic exercise in order to help them cope with the realities of of life, as if prayer is a kind of therapeutic self-talk. But this God... Uh, whom they write and speak about is not the God who is truly the strength of their hearts, their portion forever, in whom they have the living hope in the face of death. There are uh, what are sometimes called practical atheists also. Uh, and this refers to people who um, may acknowledge that uh, there is a God of sorts, In other words, they do not deny the existence of God uh, like the atheist does. And yet, for all practical purposes, God is quite irrelevant to them. In uh, the book of of Psalms, in uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 4, it says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in None of his thoughts. And then, of course, there is the familiar uh, reference also in uh, the first verse of the 14th chapter, which says, The fool has said in his heart, No God. And he's called a fool because his, uh, his confession, uh, No God, uh, flies in the face of the inescapable reality that he is confronted with himself at every turn. But however people might define God, there are many who don't take his existence seriously. Not as the true God of Scripture, as the one in whom we live and move and have our being, as Paul proclaims in Acts chapter uh, 17. The one who is not far from each one of us, the one who gives all life, breath, and all things like the Refreshing rain that we can hear on the roof of the church. Uh, how many of you were struck with the goodness of God when it began to rain 
after a period of dryness. And you just took great delight in rain. And I thought, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of people throughout the city and in many places that are taking pleasure in this simple gift of refreshing rain to uh, cause the grass and the trees to flourish after a drought. But do they feel constrained to acknowledge God and to give thanks to Him? No, they enjoy His gifts. And there must be something within them that confronts them with the, or with the reality of the giver. Because the Bible teaches that every mouth will be stopped. The world will become guilty before God, including those who have never had His Word, because God has made Himself known to them in creation but they do not acknowledge Him as God, nor are they thankful. They're not thankful for His gifts, even though they receive them, even though they may delight in them, even though deep down, in an inescapable way, they know that they come from God. You see, this this confession, no God, is not a matter of uh, profound intellect. It's not a matter of uh, sound reason. It is a reflection of the heart. It's a reflection of the human heart's prejudice against the living God. Because they don't want to acknowledge Him and worship Him as God. So they suppress that knowledge, even though it is inescapable. It's a revelation that obligates all people to to be thankful, to respond to the revelation of His eternal power and deity, as Romans 1 says. And that means that believing in God is not some kind of a leap over a gap. A gap that that lies between what is rational and provable on the one hand, and on the other hand there is this mystical theory about God. And between it there is a, a big gap. And faith is a kind of leap over that gap, over that space. And people just choose to believe as an act of will. It's not really rational. It's not based on science. It's not based on real irrefutable evidence, but it's a leap of faith. They choose to believe. That's not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith is a response to what has been made known. The existence of God is inescapable, and faith is accepting that inescapable truth not begrudgingly, not simply deep down in our hearts, though we don't want to acknowledge it in any practical way. Yes, revelation confronts all people, but that doesn't mean that all people have faith. They suppress that knowledge. But believing that God is, as we confess in the Belgic Confession, means accepting that revelation willingly into the soul. It's to believe with the heart and to confess with the mouth that God is. The unbeliever lives and moves and has his being in God. That's a fact. It's an inescapable fact of his very existence. And when he appears before the judge of all the earth, he will remember it. He will know it as an inescapable thing that leaves him without excuse before the reality of God his judge. But the believer knows it, and he trusts in this God. He reveres this God. He loves this God, a God who is near, and he wants to know him more. He wants to know him better. 
That, of course, means that the knowledge of God also means believing in his grace. He who comes to God must believe that he is. He exists, of course. And that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, that doesn't mean that God's grace is the only thing that faith believes. Our text doesn't define uh, a kind of general and vague belief in God with only one specific feature to it, and that is that God rewards those who seek him. No, you look at the context, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not fe- uh, seen. Faith has a has a substantial reality of certainty and conviction. As uh, those who have the word of God, it also involves belief in God's creative power out of nothing, so that everything that exists and appears was made out of what is not visible. There's a definite content to this faith. And actually the first thought or the first idea of God that reaches all people is the sense of his divine power, as Romans 1 teaches, his divinity and his power. And along with that, yes, indeed, his bounty, his goodness that leaves them without excuse, even his righteousness, the fact of judgment confronts all people. Because all people, though they may not have the commandments of God, if they violate the law that is written upon their heart, their conscience testifies against them, and they know the righteous judgment of God, that those that practice such things are worthy of death, that they not only practice them, but have pleasure in those who practice them. Again, Romans chapter 1. The belief that God is also implies the belief that he is the one and only true God. There are many so-called gods. There always have been many so-called gods who are worshipped. That was the case in Israel. There were many gods of the surrounding uh, nations with their own names and their own uh, characteristics and ways of, of worship. And that continues to be true to this day. Gods that are defined and worshipped by the, the world's religions, whether Islam or Buddhism or, or Hinduism or by the cults or by uh, individual personal ideas of what God is like simply according to people's own imagination and choice to believe in God as they choose. To me, God is fill in the blank. These are idols that people make up. And according to scripture, they make up these idols in their flight from the true and living God. They do not like to retain the knowledge of God in their hearts. And what does they do? They, they turn to idolatry. Only the Lord is the living God. Now, you're familiar with that language if you're familiar with the Bible. But it's important to appreciate that that is very, a very common designation of God. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. We heard from verse 10 of Jeremiah 10. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. In contrast to idols, in contrast to the feudal customs of the nations, the worthless doctrines of the nation, the work of men. Verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. These imaginary gods who have never created anything, who don't exist, well, they'll perish. It'll be evident that they are nothings, the products of man's feudal mind. 
Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood. There is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. You see, all these idols, these these uh, statues, these images, these totem poles, however they might be described or manufactured, they all supposedly represent invisible spiritual powers. False gods. But those gods exist, do not exist. And these images really are nothings. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things. They're dead gods, you might say. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul describes the entrance of the gospel to these pagans in that they turned from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven. In Acts chapter 14, as Paul uh, confronted idolatry, he says that uh, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. Again, he goes on to speak of how this God throughout the generations did not leave himself without a witness, but he did good, gave us rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Yeah, the feelings of gladness, happiness that people uh, enjoy through God's gifts, they bear witness to his goodness obligating them to worship him. The gods that these images and idols represent are nothings. They're dead gods. God alone is the living God. Remember, remember how that was the, the confession of, of, uh, of Daniel also in, in chapter 6. When the Lord saved Daniel from the den of lions, King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and be in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure uh, to the end. Only the living God can save. This description of God as the living God uh, declares God not simply as one who truly exists, but it really reveals God uh, in the fullness of his activity and of his power and grace. He is the living God who is near to judge, a God who redeems, a God who rewards those who diligently seek him. And our text here in Hebrews chapter 11 really focuses on that which is most uh, precious to weak and needy sinners. It, it uh, speaks of God in terms of his graciousness. You see, special revelation is necessary for salvation. General revelation, the inescapable testimony uh, of creation and conscience, they testify to the reality of God, but they do not testify to the way of Salvation through Jesus Christ. For that we need special revelation. And that leads us to see that the purpose and the focus of special revelation 
is God's saving purpose in Christ. Show his mercy to sinners. And that again, uh, means that this reward, uh, that, uh, the writer to Hebrews speaks of is not a, a matter of, of, uh, a reward of works, something that is merited by our goodness. In fact, when you look at this chapter and its, uh, record of those who demonstrated faith, they demonstrated trust in God's word. They believed in God's promises. They believed in a pardoning God. Isn't that the testimony of Abel who brought a sacrifice of blood? Trusting in God's mercy and in acceptance through sacrifice. At the heart of the true knowledge of God is belief in his saving goodness. Article 1 comes to a climax in our confession that God is good. And in that single word, good, is included his loving kindness, his tender mercy, his compassion, his graciousness. And he is the overflowing source or fountain of all good. And that's what God wants us to glory in. That's where God wants us to place our boast. We heard that towards the end of chapter 9, where it says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. A true knowledge, not an exhaustive knowledge. That's impossible for creatures. But a true knowledge of God as the one who exercises Loving kindness, that's place first. Loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. True faith involves understanding and knowing that God exercises loving kindness. And it's to trust in him as one who exercises loving kindness to me. And that is demonstrated in the gift of his son. Here in his love, not that we love God, not that we responded appropriately to his majesty and his glory and power and his holiness. No, but he demonstrated his love in sending his son to bear our guilt, to suffer for our neglect, our unbelief, our disobedience, our disrespect for God, so that we might be brought to peace with him. And it's knowing this God that draws us to him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of them that seek him. People will not come to God unless they believe this. And this implies the reverse as well, doesn't it? That belief that uh, that God's hands, as it were, are filled with, with gracious gifts. That's a great encouragement to draw near to him. That is the encouragement to come to him. That language is significant, isn't it, in our text? He who comes to God. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and drink. Drink. Come to me and your soul shall live. Jesus stood up on the last day of the, of the feast and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
No, that's not a, a summons. That's not an invitation that was restricted to that time in which the Lord Jesus uh, lived upon earth in physical proximity to people, inviting them to come to him literally and be his followers and disciples. It's also the word of the living Christ from heaven and the proclamation of the gospel to everyone within its reach, saying, come unto me, come to me, you who are weary and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. You will find rest to your souls. That's the gospel call of God's grace in Christ. And to come to him then is not a matter of walking down an aisle, right? It's a matter of the outgoings of our our whole heart and soul and will, our desires, our mind that looks to this living Savior as God's all-sufficient provision for me. The one who brings me to the Father. The one who reconciles me to God. The one in whom I have the forgiveness of sin. The one who gives me his spirit to dwell in me. Come to God. Coming to Him. Yes, that's the language of, of the beginning of faith, you might say. It's the, the language of the life of faith. You have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as to a living stone. That's, that's descriptive of the Christian life. When you get up in the morning and you begin your day with prayer, you're coming to the Lord. You're coming to acknowledge Him. Your dependence upon Him for his gifts and for his grace. When you gather with God's people to worship, you come to the Lord. You come into his presence. You come with expectation of his blessing and of his grace to you. If you come to his word, if you read the Bible, not simply as a religious duty, but to hear the voice of God, you draw near to him. You come to him through his word. You come to him in all these various ways. He is able to save unto the uttermost all those that come unto God through him. And our text joins this with another repeated and precious encouragement. That is that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. When you said, seek my face, my heart said, your face, Lord, I will seek. That also is the activity of the soul as we draw near to him in worship, as we lift up our souls to him in prayer, by being still and knowing that he is God, remembering him in our hearts, by delighting in God, by delighting in what God delights in. That's how, that's how Jeremiah and I concludes that uh, description of an understanding and knowledge of God as one who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Yes, the Lord delights in the exercise of loving kindness, righteousness, and judgment in the earth. And he delights in those who delight in him as such a God. That's how we honor him for who he is as he has revealed himself. That's how we fortify our hearts. We fortify our hearts with these wondrous promises of God's goodness and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Sarah judged him faithful who had promised. That's a description of Sarah's faith. She was convinced that God's promises are true. And she clung to them. She leaned upon them. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart, the Lord says. Let us know. Let us know the Lord. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord as a God who is so gracious, so great, but who receives those who come to him. He rewards them with the the, the grace of his favor and acceptance, eternal life in his son. Amen.